Welcome to the Back to Square One podcast with your host Chong and Kedrick. This is a podcast where we will have conversations about training, nutrition, and philosophy, taking you back to square one. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy. All right, welcome to another episode of the Back to Square Quant podcast. Today we have a very uh, special guest, all the way from uh, the other side of the world, uh, still stuck in the past. All right, uh, here it's already uh, the seventeenth of uh, March. Right, whenever our listeners are hearing this, but uh, Jane here, she's she's from Ireland, uh, so it's yeah a little bit later on a Wednesday night. So thank you very much, Jane, for. Uh, Coming onto this podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so a little bit of a background, right? I mean, correct me if uh, I missed out anything, or if I'm wrong. That uh, you are a powerlifter, and you this you just competed in nationals, and this is your first year in the open. Yes. Yeah, I just okay. had open nationals last weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, how did you go? How did I go? Um, I came seventh out of nine. Which nine, which was good because I was nominated second last coming into it, so I moved up a ranking. So, <laughs> nice. Yeah, for for the oh, for, yeah for for those that don't know, I think uh, uh, I think Ireland and like New Zealand, we are quite uh similar. You know, like we are we're quite small, right, in the sense. Yeah. But powerlifting actually is quite people take it quite seriously. Uh, and I, yeah, I have uh. I have like a couple of friends in Ireland, and uh, your your meets are quite uh, epic, right? Especially I uh, the 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 abs invitational. I think that yeah. that has always been a really really like big uh big meet with uh, a lot of theatricals, and I think that this year's nationals was at abs, right? So yeah. uh, I'm pr- pretty sure. Sh- I mean, by the look of it, it looked really like uh, uh epic as well. So it must be a must be a good experience uh that you had. Yeah, it's, I have to say for like such a small country, I think we really kind of have put on a mark in the comps that we run. Um, I know that Irish Nationals was the very first competition I went to, to watch in 2020. And it was, you know, the lights and the smoke machines and everything like that. And um, our coach, Jay at Abs, just really took it up a level this year for um, Nationals. It just makes it... It makes it easy to watch and enjoyable to watch for everyone, and just re- really kind of makes it into like a spectacle. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. So yeah, besides being uh, a powerlifter, uh, Jane is also a dietitian, registered dietitian. So she does like nutrition. Uh, I I assume for uh, for general clients, but also for powerlifters. Uh, currently, uh, she's doing like her IOPN. Uh, uh, PG dip right postgraduate diploma. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Full disclosure. Uh, I I'm 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 like your alumni because I I, I did it like ages ago. <laughs> oh. when, yeah. So we we actually have more 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 things mm-hmm. in common. Uh, I saw I saw your your. I saw you answering uh one of your questions on Instagram and you were like oh uh I'm currently doing the IOPN uh diploma. I, I when I did it it was still called like. The ISSN post, yeah, exactly, yeah. So, oh, so that's what it is changed yeah. to, because I I always knew it as ISSN. Yeah, as well. so no, oh, okay. uh, so yeah, the Guru Performance uh, Postgraduate Diploma. Uh, so I think you changed it because like you get quite a bad like uh rep calling yourself a guru right in the yeah. in the online fitness uh 
on in the online fitness. Sphere. Oh, who's not a who's but who's not a guru yeah. these days though? <laughs> Especially if you're a if if you're a fitness uh, person yeah. online. So yeah, full, uh, I'm I'm kind of like part of part of like one of the first few cohorts. Uh, so yeah, we have more more things in common. Uh, shout out to Lawan that Banok. I probably yeah. mispronounced his first name, but I, the English <laughs> people call him Laron. So, but it's like, yeah, but it's like, yeah. So, uh, maybe you can fill up what uh I have missed out, right? So let us know exactly a little bit more in detail what you do uh in the day to day life when it comes to uh your your job uh coaching nutri- mm-hmm. uh, people when it comes to nutrition. Yeah, so I um, studied human nutrition and dietetics in um, Trinity College Dublin and Dublin Institute of Technology. Um, I finished that in 2020. Um, and since then, I've pretty much been working as a clinical uh, dietitian uh, full time. So I started working um, originally in a field hospital that was set up um, because of the COVID pandemic. Um, so that was really interesting. It was actually a hospital that was in the middle of a basketball court in, in a university in Limerick. Um, and since then, I've gone on to work in different areas. I've worked in renal medicine. I've worked in cardiology and heart transplant. And I currently work um, as a community dietitian in mental health. Um, so really dealing with a lot of eating disorders um, and weight gain related to antipsychotic medication. Um, so that's really my like day to day job. Um, and then I also do uh, nutrition coaching for powerlifting. I have a few um, Olympic weightlifters as well. Um, I have one cross fitter. He's kind of new to me. So we're, we're still kind of figuring that one out. Um, but the bread and butter of what I do is, um, you know, weight cutting for competition. I had uh, three people at nationals at the weekend. Um, I've had a few um, members of the Irish team um, last year competing at Worlds and European, um, cutting in for that. Um, so I coach under Abs Powerlifting, which is my powerlifting club. Yeah, awesome. I think it's it's always good to hear that people who study nutrition, and I guess this is kind of like my personal like gripe, uh, nutrition and being a dietitian, mm-hmm. actually giving back um, not just through the general population, but everyone else. Because I think powerlifting gets specifically for powerlifting. There's there's always a really I wouldn't say like a bad rep, but there's always this association where mm-hmm. powerlifters is uh, eat donuts, yeah. drink your drink your monster or Red Bull, and uh, and lift. And I think being in that space of like you know what like. Yes, there is obviously macros, but you know, for for Jane, as you probably would tell your clients, is there's more to it than just macros. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and I think being a dietitian, and I think being a dietitian working in you know the fields that you work, that you do as like as a day to day. Um, how 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 I guess for our listeners out there who those for those who are potentially a little bit confused, uh, what is at least in ireland because i think this is very different to the us i think even in new zealand it it is a bit blurred Mm -hmm. what are some of the main differences between being an an rd like yourself um someone who's just like a like a nutrition a nutritionist and i think we also have i don't know if this is the same in ireland as well as a nutrition coach yeah so i suppose um i would call what i do with um my powerlifting clients nutrition coaching 
Um, because really what a dietitian is and what dietetics is, um, it's the clinical application of nutrition science. So someone who calls themselves a nutritionist is someone who has usually studied the field of nutrition um, versus dietetics is usually the clinical application of that nutrition in the context of an illness um, or a medical setting. Um, the difference also in Ireland is that dietitian is a protected term um, versus nutritionist isn't. So that means that anybody can call themselves um, a nutritionist, but you have to be registered um, with our, our board. It's called CORU. Um, they also, it's the board that physiotherapists, occupational therapists, optometrists, we all register under the same board. Um, you have to be registered with them to call yourself a dietitian. Um, and what that means is you've completed a degree that has um, at least 1,000 hours uh, clinical placements in it. So over the course of my degree, I would have done 1,000 hours uh, clinical placements um, in hospital settings, in community settings, in clinics. Um, and I really think the difference, the main difference is that that piece that I said that not just anybody can call themselves a dietitian. You have to have done your credentials um, and your placements with people face to face. And that was probably where I learned the most in college compared to my all the lectures I did and all the biochemistry I did was face to face uh, working with people. And, you know, that's where the real problems come up that can't be can't be solved easily. Um, so I think that's really what does set, set us apart. Yeah, yeah. I think at the end of the day, I mean, if you look at uh, nutrition as a field, it's it's quite funny because uh, my my stereotype when it comes for comes to powerlifting, uh, powerlifters, I said that every powerlifter was once uh, aspiring bodybuilder until they realized they don't like to control their food, you know. So yeah. that's why they became a uh, powerlifter. So that's like my my, my stereotype, you know. And the the thing is, I don't know about you, but what I've noticed in the recent years as well is that the attention towards uh, nutrition uh, for powerlifting is definitely growing. You know, I've mm-hmm. have had I've had I've had a lot of uh, inquiries uh, on like nutrition coaching, and honestly, I'm quite surprised because for someone uh, who has done like formal uh, studies in like um, my background is uh, sports and exercise nutrition, right? So mm-hmm. I learned nutrition specifically for like uh, exercise performance. Uh, powerlifting is actually a very uh, straightforward sport, right? The energy systems, uh, the the pathways involved in powerlifting is actually very, very straightforward. I mean, you're doing like most of the time in competition, you're doing like, oh, cool, you're doing like nine reps, you know? Yeah. Uh, like how complex can that be? But then when... I don't even think you get up to 50 reps, including <laughs> warm-ups for the whole day. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, it, and if you miss your reps, uh, which people of, sometimes do, you don't even complete nine, nine total reps. So, you know, at the end of the day, how... Uh, when I think of, you think of it from the perspective, it's like how you compare that to uh, endurance uh, athlete, right? I did my master's yeah. research uh, in uh, uh, in carbohydrates for endurance athlete, which is quite ironic because uh, I definitely do not uh, look like I run. Neither do I uh, enjoy running at all. Uh, so it's actually very uh, it's it's vastly different. You know the pathways, the the nutrient timing, and all of that matters even yeah. more. But even when you the speak to- carrying the like having the supply for food, I mean, you take an endurance runner, you have to take into account 
how are they going to carry their carbs how are they going to get them powerlifting yeah, again true. that's something yeah, that's yeah. very easy <laughs> yeah the, the carbohydrate recommendation for uh endurance athletes they it's absolutely ridiculous like you know i don't think you can eat uh yeah. that kind of like food from get that eat carbohydrates you know in that amount you have probably have to drink a, a, a huge chunk of them and so when you, you you look at it from the perspective and then when you start speaking to people uh you realize that you know not everybody actually are hitting kind of like the baseline you know let's just say 1.6 grams of protein which is not that high right for most people who are not in a severe deficit 1.6 grams of protein per kilo body weight some like powerlifters they even like fall short of that right but yeah. i think being in the in the the field of actually like working or like learning about it you'd be like oh yeah this is easy and especially if you do it yourself and you think that hitting this amount of protein is easy because you do it every single day but when you speak to people it's actually not as easy as you think for some people and mm-hmm. every individual would present their own challenges and until you speak to them uh you don't realize what those challenges are so most of the time at least for me uh, i don't know how different it is for you uh when you did your practice maybe you can share uh, a little bit insight in, into that but for me i always try to understand what are certain barriers that are preventing mm-hmm. someone from actually hitting those numbers right those numbers are just something to to kind of like strive towards and uh, sometimes the range is bigger right and obviously when it comes to competition time you have to the the margin of error is much smaller right so yeah. the question is what are the barriers right that are actually preventing someone from let's just say hitting the adequate protein and most of the time it's like it's behavioral right you you work in yeah. like uh like you said, you work in like the clinical psych psychology side of like eating as well. So you would know that eating affects people's behavior a lot or and vice versa. The behavior mm-hmm. affects someone's eating patterns. And I think at the end of the day, uh, you, you did mention speaking to people that would really give you like the most uh, valuable experience when it comes to coaching. Because personally, I think that when it, when it is... Uh, Let's just say as long as the guidelines, right, uh, for like, okay, cool, th- this is a specific macronutrient range that you you hit, right? Mm. Uh, as long as you fall within that range, uh, most you, you actually don't even have to remember whatever, like, you don't have to remember the crap cycle, you know, whatever uh, yeah. biochemistry pathway, you know, all of that is like almost useless when it comes to coaching people. Uh, what you really need to know is that all I have to remember is that, cool, these are like recommended ranges. Until the science uh, change, uh, I, which I don't think it will soon, uh, getting people to reach there is something that's a little bit more important. It's more important, and more often than not, you probably would not be able to learn it until you start speaking to people. Yeah, and I think like starting out nutrition coaching, you know, it is very easy to give people numbers on a page, but are you going to actually be able to help them to reach those numbers? That's what they. That's what they want because. They, I mean, they can use calculators. There's self-made apps now to tell people targets for, uh, you know, their calories or their protein. But there's obviously some reason why they're not reaching those goals. And I think what kind of sets my own practice apart, and I'm very lucky as well that I work with another dietitian in abs powerlifting, um, is that you know, in college. I would never have given people numbers, you know, or in my own practice. You, uh, If I meet a person who needs diabetes education, you know, it, it's very practical advice that you give, you give people and you try to break it down to some level that they can understand. 
And I think that that's what I really try to do is when I give advice, you know, if I'm saying a certain protein target and a person is 20 grams under that, you know, how, how can they reach that? And what you mentioned there about barriers, that's something that I really try to break through with people. Um, you know, you probably see it yourself as coaches that people will be like, oh, I didn't have a good week, so I didn't check in and I didn't fill in like anything. And it's like, those are actually the weeks that I need you to tell me more, you know? So I always say to people like, if you didn't track at all today, like, please just fill in the comment section and tell me why, you know, what was the thing that stopped you from being able to do that? Because we need to learn that barrier so that we can we can work around it. Um, and I would, again, kind of going with my dietetics background, I would very much so focus on people's diet quality as well. Um, and I suppose I'm very cautious of people's relationship with food, now working in like the psychology side of things. So I really do try to take um, a more holistic approach to people's nutrition um, and I do think you're right that the demand for nutrition coaching is rapidly expanding in powerlifting and I think it's good because I feel like before it was very much so people got in touch with someone like a couple of weeks out from a comp and they wanted to cut weight and that was it and like a lot of people have speak in the past of like weight cutting experiences for comp that led them to have really poor relationships with food and poor relationships with you know, making way and their diet. So I think that nearly near year round work with someone, you know, in your off season and when you're looking at your comp season is, is really important. I think people are starting to understand that a bit more. Yeah, I think, like, I think you definitely uh, made a really good point there, Jane. Uh, you know, in the past, people would just come to a coach for like, hey, I need to make weight. I'm five kilos over, I'm four weeks out, and you're kind of like, well, uh. yeah. <laughs> but then I think, yeah, but I think, I think um, what Kedrick also mentioned is quite, uh, was quite good that I think a lot of the powerlifters, specifically for powerlifters these days, are starting to value uh, nutrition more. And this is just completely observational, but I think it's also. Uh, heightened I, I think the demand for nutrition coaching or nutritional help in general is actually heightened quite a lot particularly with the pandemic because mm. I think in, in the past like powerlifters like oh you know I've, I've trained four times a week you know like my my energy my energy expenditure is up you yeah. know like I, I I can eat you know and I know it's not great but my health and my weight isn't necessarily affected too much and I'm always within that one to two kilo maybe two and a half a bigger bigger people to weight cut into their category but i think what you know and i don't want this to be a COVID thing but i think as the pandemic did hit i think a lot of these powerlifters who have trained in gyms and you know and all of us have experienced that i'm sure um who didn't have the luxury to train at home mm. um for x period of time they start to realize like oh shit like actually um i'm putting on a lot of weight and i don't actually feel really good and I think they then result back to saying, oh, I just need to go back and powerlift. But then the reality is that when they actually go back into powerlift, they're like, why is my weight not coming off? Yeah. Like, use, I, you know, like when I was training, I was always two kilos have, two kilos above my, my, my weight class. You know, why am I 10 kilos above my weight class? I'm not doing anything different. I think that probably is one of the big reasons as to, well, at least observationally, I think why, especially in the last couple of years, despite 
you know, the pandemic, obviously now we're over it, mm. kind of, kind of. Uh, I think that sparked a lot of like nutritional help from powerlifters because then they start to realize like, hey, I think um, I-, I would love to stay in the sport. I could do more in that weight class, but I think it's not just about training to get my weight down. Yeah. There's definitely more to it. Um, which brings me to an interesting question because you mentioned currently, currently you are also working in a, sort of like in a psych- psychology mental health setting for the dietitian portion, obviously coaching nutrition on the side. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always have this very interesting conversation with, well, powerlifters in general is that, and I want to get your thoughts on this as, as an RD, is that weight class sports, especially for uh, people who are new to the to the sport, tends to have a very, tends to potentially steer someone into potentially developing eating disorders because they're like i need to stay in this weight class and the you know they 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 tell their nutritionists or dietitians like look like these are the macros they're not working like we need to push it down and you do all the other things um yeah maybe just i guess there's not necessarily a question but what are your thoughts on that because i'm sure you you see that in your clinical practice with the actual mental health um but and i'm also sure you start to see that as well with powerlifters who you coach are like hey actually you know like the way that we're approaching this you know i'm I'm kind of a bit worried that you know i don't want to stay down that path yeah of course and i totally would agree with you there and um me and my boyfriend were only having this conversation last weekend because obviously you know nationals and everyone was cutting weight and we were just kind of like the things that people do to like make weight it's not no it's not normal eating you know It, Mm. it wouldn't be considered orderly eating you know um, and there's actually um, a friend of mine via Instagram, Louisa Vargas. I'm not sure if either of you follow her, but she actually did her uh, research project on um, like disordered eating habits um, in powerlifters who cut weight and whether they felt like that affected yeah. or contributed to it. Um, I believe it's been published, um, but it, it's a very interesting read and I found it very interesting um and it kind of highlighted the need for people to have some level of i suppose psychological support if they feel like weight cutting is affecting them and anecdotally i've spoke to people who are like oh yeah when i was cutting to like this weight class like i would like not eat for a week and then the week after comp like i eat everything inside and like gain a load of weight and really developing these like not healthy cycles and I have had a few people that I've I've spoke to them about that um it was kind of a situation that we were coming we were coming into a comp and like they weren't really sure whether they were going to do the comp and then they were like oh no I'm just going to wait for this one so um like we'll just kind of like stop the diet and I was like well, really, what we want to focus on here is sustain. If you want to stay in this weight class, we want to focus on like sustainably keeping you near this weight class. And a big thing for that person was breaking them out of that cycle that I just said there, like cut, cut, cut for comp, comps over, food freedom, gain weight, and then end up back in the same situation, having to cut, cut, cut back into comp. Um, because I don't really think that's the healthiest for anyone in terms of their their mental health um so yeah I certainly agree with you that it can push people in that direction but I do believe weight class selection and appropriate weight class selection plays a massive part um in that I even though I like 
part of my job is helping people to cut weight. I am a massive like person for saying you should not be cutting weight and you know when it's not appropriate because um again this is a conversation I was having with the other dietitian that I work with recently that we kind of feel like weight class weight cutting has nearly kind of become like this rite of passage in powerlifting and people feel like to be on some level of eliteness that they should be cutting weight um when really that's not what it's intended for at all um so yeah even though I help people cut weight I am very much so ready to tell people when they should not be cutting weight or when it's just too much yeah 100% I think um the big thing as well you kind of have done uh we 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 kind of have to understand is that uh powerlifting and as a weight class sport is relatively new and Mm. a lot of the practices from powerlifting they stem from combat sport athletes right and you i mean if you watch any form of mma or ufc or whatever um you would say that those athletes are built differently right whether it's physically or in their head right uh, so I've read papers where they uh, evaluated uh, the experience of combat athletes cutting. And what you say is right. Uh, it, it seems like it is a rite of passage. The person, because what they also do is that they, when it comes to boxing or fighting, there's this huge intimidation factor when it comes to your opponent because you want to punch the guy, you want to knock him out, you want to submit him, you want to tap him out, right? And mm. That there is that huge intimidation factor that if you can impose on your opponent, you will be to your advantage. And one of the papers I've read, they said that making weight and cutting hard and making it makes it seem like I'm more intimidating, you know. Yeah. And even in combat sport athletes, uh, they said that they overestimated uh how well they could recover after they actually uh, cut weight so i think all of that is like very very important to keep in mind because while the practices can be slightly different obviously due to different weight in times people often have that that same mindset i need to cut weight because if i cut weight i'm badass you know like yeah. when it comes to powerlifting mm. i need to do this mm. i will brag about the crazy weight cut that i i yeah. did you know and then uh, even if i don't yeah. live well I w- people will be like oh wow you cut so much weight you know next time uh it, you, you probably can lift X amount of weight more if you didn't have to do all this. But the fact is that we can't really evaluate that counterfactual because we don't really know, you know. And exactly. the fact is yeah. that do you really yeah. need to cut that amount of weight? I think those are very, like, important uh, questions to ask. And I, I know the study, right? So uh, I, I, I know Louisa. Uh, I mean, we, we, we met in Sweden and we I, I, I was doing my research there uh, uh, while, while I was in Sweden. And then I, I spoke to her and then she told me she was, like, doing something as well and then like we became friends uh we we exchanged ideas right so her, her paper is called like weight on the bar versus weight on the scale qualitative yeah. exploration of disordered eating in competitive female powerlifters so it's really uh yeah it's a really interesting study uh she did it in female powerlifters and based on the combat sport literature we look at female powerlifters also have higher tendency of actually developing uh eating disorders compared to male uh mm-hmm. male male athletes right in general and I also think that female powerlifters often have some form of uh, they do prioritize a certain look more, which might predispose them to want to cut more as well, right? Uh, because when I speak to female uh, athletes, they will be like, "Ah, oh, yeah, you know, uh, I'm okay. Uh, I'm not really 
I don't really need to cut as much, but I would like to cut a little bit more so I can look a little bit better. You know, we I often get that quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And prior to the IPF establishing the uh, 69 kilo weight class, most of the female lifters would rather like chop off their hair, chop off their legs, than move from 63 all the way to, to 72. 72. 72? You know? Yeah, so, it was yeah. such a big jump. I was really glad that they they brought that in. Um, I think it changed things for a, a lot of people. Because even like, if you take it as a female, I mean, I was considering myself in 2020 uh, competing as a 72 coming into 2021. It was just going to depend on I wanted to make the junior uh, world team. So I was just going to see who was in each weight class. And I wasn't planning to be a full 72. But even the idea of like going from 63 kilos to 72 kilos, like it's a 10 kilo jump, 10 kilo jump. Pretty much. So I feel like them changing around those weight classes have facilitated that a lot better for people. Even like people like, you know, Jessica uh, Bittner not having to cut to like 72. She's only cutting to 76 now. Um, so I was really glad when they brought in those new female weight classes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's really, uh, I think it's I think it's important to, to have conversations about that because at the end of the day, um, our, our role is like when it, when we do nutrition coaching, we often play mm-hmm. second fiddle to the actual powerlifting coaching, you know? Yeah. And like, I always tell people like, you know, nutrition is uh, like Robin to Batman, right? Uh, yeah. So nutrition is like the assistance towards uh, Batman, which is like the training, you know? Uh, and at the end of the day, uh, we always play second fiddle. And if you work with someone and you don't coach the person's training, you'll be like, yeah, this person has uh, been uh, doing really well. But when the person cuts and the performance is impacted, who is to blame, right? I'm like, yeah. usually the like the nutritionist would be the the person uh, that 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 gets the blame. But the thing is that you know there is like no way to kind of like avoid it. I read I read a paper uh, done by uh, the like researchers in uh, from uh, Liverpool John Moores where yeah. uh, they actually uh, it's a case study on a boxer where they had a lot of weight to make for this boxer and they had to cut his protein intake down because they knew he couldn't make weight without losing uh if he didn't uh lose muscle mass so they made him intentionally lose muscle mass because the timeline was too short but because it's a sport right where it's a boxing boxing is a sport where it's uh mostly it's it's more technical rather than like uh wrestling Mm -hmm. or jujitsu where muscle mass actually like plays a larger role uh so the the boxer could get away with it but when it comes to powerlifting uh losing muscle mass would potentially uh reduce uh the ability to produce force so we definitely Mm -hmm. can't exploit that you know but there there are things where people have to understand you know if you're if you're gonna cut like uh four or five percent you know you can still go by some people might not even be able to take that cut especially if they are really new to uh, weight cutting uh and but some people I've I in my survey I, I've seen people cut like a totality of almost like ten percent and I'm like mm. dude like this is like pretty crazy you know uh, not not to mention if someone is new to cutting uh, I remember this story uh, I so I I remember for example uh, in Calgary in twenty eighteen worlds right mm-hmm. like Isabella uh, von Eisenberg yeah. she didn't make weight ah, you know? yes. so she was like she was like right to the last minute she didn't make weight and I don't want to psychologize uh, and pick uh, pick her thoughts out but because if she that was the year that uh, Kimberly Walford didn't compete 
And if she would just stay in the 72 class, right, she would probably be the champion, you know. And Mm. but that year she didn't get to compete at all. Uh, So even experienced lifters like her uh, would still have an issue. uh, Would still have issues making weight. So what more? uh, Someone that has no experience whatsoever doing this for the first time. And I mean, let's face it, right? whether it comes whatever method you use when it comes to uh and if you've never cut weight before it's gonna be tough there there are a list of like methods we can use we can talk about that uh right after uh but because the methods you use are are something that you don't use frequently right it's gonna be different and because it's different it's gonna post its own challenges whether it's a low gut volume i mean a low gut volume diet right is it's not nice to eat you know like i it's absolutely horrible and your food choices are so limited and yeah. especially on the last couple of days where you have to like reduce your sodium intake. The only reason why fat like tastes good when it comes to like fried chicken oh. is because they have salt, right? And fat combined. If you just have fat by itself, man, not nice at all. Mm. Yeah. MCT yeah. oil, raw. <laughs> oh. Water loading, uh, water cutting. I mean, like if people, imagine if you, are, you work in like, uh, like say clinical setting and you actually have to deal with patients most of the time, you can't be going to the toilet. You know, I had a lifter who's a pilot, right? Uh, yeah. And you, I mean, he said like, yeah, you know, yeah. we, I, I said like, yeah, you know, we just have to diet you down because uh, you're, you are still working uh, the, the, meet, the, the week prior to your comp. We are not going to have you flying the plane and going to the toilet all the time, you know, uh, <laughs> things like that. And then obviously the, the worst would be I mean, not, not the worst, but uh, and the worst, I, I quantify worse by the most painful in the shortest amount of time would be uh, trying to lose weight through dehydration via heat, right? Yeah. Like that itself, if you're not someone that's not, that doesn't tolerate heat well, that's going to be really, really uh, uh, hard to do, you know? So they all post... There are different challenges. So knowing what to use is also very important. So my, yeah. my, my question to you is that, uh, let's just say, um, do you have a hierarchy of what you would usually use first, yeah. right? So usually we pick the low-hanging fruit, right? Let's just say if this person is like 1% above uh, body weight, what would you do? If this person is like 2%, what would you do? 3%, what would you do? 4%, what, what would you do? And I think to start that off, maybe you can share what would be your cutoff point where you said, no, you just have to compete in the higher weight class, right? How many percent yeah. above their, com- their their weight class would you recommend that they cut? Uh, you can probably also separate that into two categories. What is something that you're comfortable with? Like, you know, this person will, would make weight very unlikely that performance will be impacted. And what's the maximum weight you will allow somebody to cut down? So uh, you can start with this too, and then you can share on your hierarchy on how, uh, yeah. which methods you will use first. Yeah, so I think I definitely use a hierarchy uh, method because we, all those methods that you described there, I mean, moving up from like the fiber up to like the water load and the dehydration methods, there's like increasing levels of fatigue and like effect that they have. So if we only have to drop a little bit of weight, there's no need for you to be sitting in sauna for for two hours and this is something I often have to explain to people who it's their first wake up because they have this perception that like that it's all of it it's it's everything um I would usually you know I would say my lowest uh, hanging fruit would be low fiber and low food volume and I think people can have great results from that especially if they've been dieting they've probably been having somewhat of a high fiber diet 
um, you know, for food volume and things like that. So they usually respond quite well to that. Um, I would always try to kind of lower salt uh, kind of the two days before competition just so nobody has any random weight spikes or hangs on to any extra water. Um, Then my next step would be a water load. And for actually a lot of my clients recently, I've only done a water load and they haven't needed to water cut. I've just brought them back to their normal level of water intake um, because uh, for a lot of them, I've noticed once they've started to water load, their weight starts to to drop um, and doing the cut part, you know, really reducing their water intake hasn't actually dropped their weight uh, much further so I would do the water load and then I drop their water intake back to their normal amount if someone has a bit more weight to lose we would do a water cut um, and then specifically really looking at cutting the water off a certain amount of time before the person weighs in um, I'm not really a fan of doing um, sweating uh, via dehydration and heat methods for two hour weigh-ins um, I do have some lifters who compete in the ab series and that would be a 24-hour weigh-in. So I would give more leeway to those lifters to have more weight to lose. But I am quite strict when it comes to a two-hour weigh-in. I don't like to be doing uh, more than 5% uh, from an acute weight-cutting strategy. I mean, that's what all the the literature really points us to is that going above 5% is going to have um, effects on performance. So... I will have a discussion with a lifter. Um, you know, if they have more weight to lose, obviously we'll try to use the, you know, the long-term diet alongside the acute diet. Um, but I'll usually try and set a date where we need to be to make the lower weight class. Um, and if we're not looking like we're going to be there at that date, I will suggest uh, going up to the higher weight class. Um, just from the point of view of, I, you know, as you say, they have a coach and they have a nutrition coach, but a lot of the time if a a meet doesn't go well because of a weight cut, it does fall back on you. And from like a safety perspective, I'm not comfortable putting people through really, really harsh, intensive cuts because I just don't stand by it. I mean, maybe if you are Isabella von Weissenberg and you're going for a world title, I can stand for it then but if you're like you know even coming into nationals at the weekend and you know you're not someone that's going for a podium you're maybe looking to increase one or two of your rankings is it really worth it um so I would be quite strict with lifters um about that five percent mark I have gone a little bit higher just for one girl because she um she's a lifter in her gym she only started about six months ago and she's ex extremely competitive straight off the bat and she competes in the 84 category so really her next option is 84 plus which you know it's not the best option in terms of a weight class because she would have to weigh significantly more to be competitive in it um and she also won national champion so it was it was worth it for her to have to to cut a little bit more but as I said, I'm usually quite strict about the 5%, but again, I will always take into account what, why are we cutting? What are the pros? What are the cons? Are you going to improve your placing or are you going to place the exact same if you were to go up a weight category and actually enjoy your, your peak and your prep?
Mm. Yeah, I, I like that um, both yourself and Kudrick place the, <laughs> well, I guess like the lowest hanging fruit being uh, gut volume. I think that's always going to be one that's, you know, the easily, yeah. the easiest to sort of like manipulate. Um, I've, I've been personally actually um, just for context, so Auckland Champs is next weekend for us down here in New Zealand, mm-hmm. um, and I've uh, I'm coaching. Well, I'm managing self managing my weight cut, which I don't really need to, but I'm just playing around with it. Um, and a few clients as well. And I and I kind of want to get your thoughts on on this particular sort of like gut manipulation strategy. And Kedrick, like, do chime in as well. Um, so this is just my my general understanding of it because. I guess the way we see it is like we don't really want to take them further up the hierarchy if we don't need exactly, to, right? Yeah. Basically, that's that's kind of the, the gist. So what I've been playing with, uh, just completely anecdotal, there's some evidence to back it up, is because during a peak, like during a powerlifting peak, generally volume isn't a lot, unless if you're a little bit dumb like me who goes to like cardio while he's peaking because I'm... Because, you know, like, it was that conscious decision I made. Um, There isn't, I guess, necessarily, there is some benefit, but not significant benefit enough to be, like, overly, uh, to to have a lot of your macros, at least, coming from carbohydrates. Because, you know, you're doing, like, 1RM stuff, you know, like, 2RM, 3RM, you're not doing, like, an Mm 8RM. So what I have been playing, and I think psychologically this actually kind of helps, is actually when... Uh, athletes sort of go into their peak and you kind of like look at their weight and you're like oh we're trending in the right direction but we just want to make the cut a little bit easier so you don't have the stress about it during comp day um actually kind of shifting to not necessarily like a low carb higher fat diet but just cutting out a little bit more carbon transferring to fat so just to kind of like gauge the weight as they as they go into their peak because again like as long as we do nutrient timing correctly and all that kind of stuff we'll still be able to train mm-hmm. pretty well because we're not slashing carbs completely, but we're just cutting it out ever so slightly, increasing the fat. And psychologically, as the athlete um, starts to see the weight drop, because you know it's not necessarily a fat drop, it's literally just gut volume from the get-go mm-hmm. at the start. Um, I, I personally found that it, it helps a lot with their mental because they, they, they do their own research and they're like, oh, I need to be this weight to make the weight class. And then they start to freak out like a month before, like, oh my God, like, I'm not there. And then all of a sudden I'm like, cool, like, let's just try this approach. It's probably not going to affect your training because, well, you're not doing anything more than six. Let's be honest in a peak. Maybe, maybe not, hopefully not. (laughs) Um, And then as they get to kind of like the second last week or even the last week of peak, they're pretty much at a really good, comfortable spot. And I'm like, well, honestly, you're probably just like a kilo away um, that, that, you know, we can just literally just pivot more into the gut and don't even worry about water. And I just want to kind of get your thoughts on that approach, uh, Jane and Kedrick, because that's something I've been, that's an idea I've been toying around with in the last couple of months. And it seems to work psychologically more for the athlete because they, they see the weight drop, but they don't actually see the, their performance dip in, in that, in that sense. What do you think? I think from the point of view of even, um, satiety in um a cost having the slightly higher fat with the the lower carbohydrates um can play out a little bit better just because satiety is something that we want to look at in the diet um i personally for myself that's something that i would do because i again i just find that i'm more satiated when i have more fat but again i think that really depends person to person so like if someone does feel better 
with the higher fat that's something that we look at but if there's someone that that's not really for them they don't really like that we'll look at the the, the other way um but yeah I definitely agree with what you're saying the point that you made about the less stress on you know comp day I, I'm very much so a fan of having someone at the weight that they're going to just do their manipulation from from kind of like if someone's doing a four-week peak I would kind of like to have them near that weight because then they have so then you're just manipulating them from that weight for comp so then hopefully after they've rehydrated properly and they've got their food back in they're back nearer that weight and that's the weight that they've done their heavy lifts at that's the weight that they're used to performing at and I think that can psychologically help them as well it's like well I did all my heavy singles you know from around this you know pre-manipulation weight Mm -hmm. yeah so I I'm quite I'm quite long I'm quite long I think you've muted yourself oh there we go (laughs) I'm I'm quite I'm quite quite long-winded so bear with me I think that the the most important thing is first up uh, I'm going to put it out there I think that powerlifters overestimate how much carbohydrates they need let's just I'm I I don't know if you agree with me definitely yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) I I, from a purely uh physiological perspective they definitely overestimate the amount of carbohydrates they need for their training uh research has shown uh even you need a lot of volume like multiple sets of like sixes and through different exercises right uh i think the like the landmark paper was done by like uh coil uh like back in the 90s or or something like that where they did like multiple sets of sixes and they only depleted like 35 percent of their muscle glycogen uh Mm. and i mean recently there was paper that showed like yeah cool uh muscle glycogen in different uh compartments of the muscle right but the fact of the Mm -hmm. matter is that we also know that if you're eating carbohydrates most likely your glycogen stores would be replenished within 24 hours you know Mm -hmm. and let's face it most powerlifters they don't train twice a day you know so uh i would say that a glycogen depleted powerlifter if they're eating normally is quite hard to come by uh and glycogen (laughs) yeah Yeah. glycogen depletion is really I was speaking to people and they say, oh, I deplete glycogen. And I think you need to know that when you deplete, like muscle glycogen happens when you contract the muscle, meaning if you're not contracting the muscle and you're just chilling or you're fasted, uh, the glycogen you're you're getting, uh, for those listeners that don't know, glycogen is basically stored carbohydrates. uh, It's in your liver, right? So you're not actually depleting muscle glycogen. And to deplete 50% of muscle glycogen, you need to be cycling uh, for 90 minutes at 70% VO2 max. And 70% VO2 max roughly correlates to 85% of max heart rate. And a powerlifter would not be able to cycle more than five minutes at 85% max heart rate. So you're not going to deplete your glycogen. Uh, let's face no. it, right? I'm going to put this uh, like out there. Okay, so let's yeah. like get the, the carbohydrate uh, thing uh, out of the way. My next que- my, the next way I, I kind of frame this is what was, what was their prior intake, right? Because I always look at nutrition as... Mm-hmm. Uh, by what I'm gonna implement is gonna be is I think about it is how contra- contrasting it is from the, yeah. what they are doing prior because the more different it is, the harder it would be. Yeah. Uh, so if I would need if yeah. I w- I'm gonna reduce their carbohydrates, uh, during a certain time, right? If they have a huge carbohydrate intake prior, and I'm gonna cut it down, right? Not to mention you add the stress of peaking as well. That could be really dif- uh, difficult for them. I think that uh, carbohydrates is uh, people overestimate how much carbohydrates they need physiologically, but I do think that carbohydrates 
they can play a role uh, psychologically, right? Yeah. So we know that there's like studies out there in like carbohydrate mouth rinsing where yeah. they just basically take a sports drink, they yeah. they rinse their mouth, they don't actually consume the carbohydrate and it upregulates certain uh uh like certain parts of the brain. So it helps people feel better in general. Like carbohydrate might provide a better sense of well-being. Uh, whether it's... Uh, the impact on resistance training, I would say it's unclear because there really isn't much studies at resistance training for powerlifting. There isn't much studies that they do where the person's also have been dieting in the past and then mm-hmm. now you're also uh, trying to do have benefit from the psychological impact. Most of the studies usually happen acutely, meaning that they get this person rinse their mouth, do exercise, yeah. right? And then maybe they either do a crossover or, or they have a parallel group design so they have a control where they don't, they just use like a placebo, uh, maybe like sweetener uh, uh, that there's, there's no carbohydrates. So they, it's not really evaluated into uh, in the context of like a chronic diet. So I would say that psychologically, carbohydrates do benefit, which is why personally, what I like to do is I like to get people... Uh, if I can, right? Because like I said, we play second fiddle to their training performance. I like to get people slightly lower than what they would need to be before they mm-hmm. start their cut. And then during the peak, I would increase their carbohydrates slightly when, and it gives you more, more opportunity to play with. Obviously, this is very important to plan uh, ahead because I want to make sure that throughout the block, they have minimal uh, impact on performance. So uh, in general, like that, that, that is how I do things. I, uh, then when the, the fact of the matter is that when it comes to uh, low gut volume manipulation, uh, the studies out there is actually not actually clear how much one one can lose, right? Because if we look at the combat sports literature, it's probably the the worst to to say how much you can lose because they say okay, self select lose six percent, you know, lose seven percent. You can use whatever method you want, and then usually the studies just report a combination of like five different methods, and you don't really know which is what. So there, there, there isn't mm. really a normative range, which is why currently I'm in, in my PhD. I'm working on trying to find a normative range for low gut volume. Uh, we I've not completed the study. Right? It's still in the works. But what I usually do is I reduce the person's uh, carbohydrate by sixty percent. Right, mm-hmm. so they consume forty percent of what they usually consume. But the total amount of calories I would uh, I transfer them. To fat, so the ca- the amount of calories they're eating is still the same, right? Mm-hmm. From an energy balance perspective, uh, but obviously the f- the f- the food weight is less because fat has higher uh, yeah. calories per per gram. So yeah. that's essentially what I do. Uh, I usually do that for three days, uh, and then uh, obviously with reduction of fiber as well. So yeah. in general, that's how I do. I think something I would like to kind of like ask. Uh, I mean, it's tangentially related to what you mentioned just now, Jane, was that you reduce like salt intake the last two days. That's what I do as well. Mm. My question to you is, and I don't know the answer, uh, is that what do you think about salt loading, right? So I would share my thoughts first, or like, and then you can just, uh, I mean, if I'm wrong, you don't have to be afraid. You can just say, I think you're <laughs> wrong. Okay, like, cause, like I say, I don't know the answer and I don't, based on my knowledge, there's no information in the literature. So, personally, uh, I think that many, uh, like manip- manipulating sodium intake uh, by salt loading, it's a, like it's a huge stretch because I feel like sodium and basically sodium, your sodium balance is like highly ma- regulated by 
your body. You know, like people who have high mm. sodium intake, usually they, they say that those are the people that suffer from like high blood pressure, right? You eat too much sodium, not enough potassium, you don't have that balance, you have high blood pressure and then, you know, you faint somewhere in the middle of the road or something like that. So I don't think there's any uh, good science backing up sodium uh, manipulation because uh, of how tightly regulated uh, that person, uh, sorry, how tightly regulated the body is, not to mention most people don't really have a clue of how much sodium they eat. You know? yeah. And, and some that's people a huge don't even... part of it, isn't it? Getting them to actually, if you're going to do sodium, you have to get them to be tracking their intake for about like two weeks beforehand and even teaching someone how to track their salt intake like actually looking up salt in my fitness pal and measuring it, it you know, it's that's a challenge in of itself. Not not to mention salt doesn't equal sodium, right? So exactly, salt also yeah. other stuff. So it's just, ta- it's just table yeah. salt. Yeah. Yeah. What, what 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 exactly are you measuring? I don't know. So usually when people tell me, uh, what I've observed is that, like I said, I like to do it uh, as close to what they're doing prior. So I have mm-hmm. people that that started working with me. And they have cut weight before in the past, and they say, "Oh, I usually like increase my my salt intake this like uh like five days out." As long as it's within range, I usually say, "Yeah, go ahead." You know, uh, I don't think it will affect things, but if it makes you comfortable, go ahead. I uh so, but in general, I think that it doesn't really uh add a physiological benefit. Uh, but yeah, I'm curious to hear what you think. So I would usually only manipulate salt if someone is doing a 24-hour weigh-in and again that's someone that I have that's cutting you like a little bit more weight than they would be for a two-hour weigh-in and I suppose my caveat with that is that it's probably a bit more of an aggressive cut and I will usually load salt if someone is on a considerably high amount of water and just because I suppose I don't really want anybody getting hyponatremia um, if they um, because I mean I've seen people that have had to drink like a lot amount a large amount of water to have the effects from loading water um, because I've done you know trials of water cuts with, with people and even personally myself like I have to drink like a very very large amount of water for it to have an effect on me so I would usually a kind of aim for some salt loading with those people just because they are having such a large volume of water they're probably going to feel a bit loopy if they don't increase their salt um mm. a little bit i don't know if you've ever experienced that feeling of when you drink a load of water and you just feel like totally off um so yeah, uh, yeah. i would agree with you i don't really do it on the standard basis it's kind of more so for those those 24-hour weigh-ins and also if i just have someone who's really drinking a large amount of water Mm, yeah i think i think that that definitely makes sense on what you said there jane um uh like over the last few years like it it has been such a big thing like oh if you water load and then uh you do you need to do like a like a sodium load particularly sodium not just salt but like actual sodium load so actually like the na plus not nacl for those just to just to put it out there for everyone and would it just going off what you said and just kind of like tying just tying what you said uh in my head i'm just kind of rambling at this point but would you say that for lighter people who are going to go through a water load, um, 
you, they don't necessarily need to have too much salt just because the the consumption of water is obviously not going to be as high as someone who's let's say uh, me who's like a 66 kilo lifter compared to someone who's like a you know like a 105 lifter mm. you know the, obviously the amount of water we consume is going to be significantly mm-hmm. different from a water load perspective um, would you then say that for someone who's lighter trying to water cut or cut down to a weight class potentially not needing to actually salt load but just taking out salt at the end yeah. or um yeah. i think i also Thoughts? apart from body weight i also look at someone's habitual water intake um because like if someone if your body weight calculation is giving that they need to drink four liters but they're already drinking three liters of water a day like there's someone who just drinks a lot of water it's probably not going to have as much of an effect so i do take someone's habitual water mm. intake into that but yeah I, I would agree on some level what you're saying i suppose i think the main important thing with sodium is i do get everybody to track it because we are going to want them to avoid those that higher sodium intake um at the end of the week so i do make everyone aware i suppose that sodium does affect your weight and that it's something that we need to consider um coming into competition week and I think it for them, like looking at that as a variable can teach them about what some of the high salt foods are and what are some of the, the low salt foods. And that just kind of makes it a bit easier to reduce it when they have to. Mm. Yeah, re- re- I think it's also important to kind of like, like you integrate that within your nutrition coaching. You'll be like, yeah, you know, if you go out and eat, uh, most yeah. likely there'll be a lot of sodium that's why your weight is high yeah. next day so yeah. you draw that uh, you you create that awareness right because at the end of the day I think if you just chuck somebody into the deep end and say oh don't consume sodium because your weight will go up they'll be like what really you know <laughs> yeah. so then was that a thing you know but if you like prior you say like okay cool you know let me know when you eat out because when you eat out I don't expect you to track let's just say if you're doing some form of tracking I don't expect exactly. you to track yeah. to, to the T most likely your weight is going to be high the next day uh and then you tell them why. Oh, it's because first of all, you know, the food you might not be used to the, the food. Uh, one, I mean, there's a possibility where some people have just really like sensitive stomach where they eat food and then uh, their stomach like you know it just like feel bloated, right? Yeah. Not just sodium, but they just feel like, uh, for lack of a better term, people say oh, I feel really inflamed, right? Because yeah, you know, uh, you you're not used to the food or something, and your stomach might be upset. That that could be one 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 reason. Second, that yeah, you probably have a lot of sodium, you know, and your, your body's holding on to a lot of water. So you draw attention to that. So I think that that's yeah really important. And I mean, at the end of the day, I feel that uh, like like you mentioned, like it's actually like really difficult to manipulate. But I uh, the good point that you, you brought up was like some people, if you have, consu- you consume high amounts of water, you know, you might have to increase sodium intake. Because like you said, like, uh, like it's a balance, right? Like, mm-hmm. like sodium, potassium, water intake is like this tightly regulated process, not for not men like for powerlifting or yeah. any weight cutting sport. It's just so we are trying to manipulate it the best we can. So I think this gives us a really good segue to the next uh, conversation in the, on the next like method in the hierarchy, which is uh, water loading and water cutting. Uh, based on current research, uh, and this is a question that I would like to ask you as well. I don't know the answer once again. Uh, so like I said, don't... He's basically just using this as an excuse to like get more yeah, answers basically. for his PhD. Uh, <laughs> at this point, we because you, you brought up a really good point that you said you need you need more uh, water right to 
yeah, you need more water to actually feel the effect. And uh, there, I know there are different methods where people use the water load uh, and water cut. And I don't know which is the best way to do it because uh, there's nothing out there in the literature. The only paper so far that actually quantified the method of water loading is by real uh, and colleagues, right? So in that one, that method they use uh, one liter per every ten kilo of body weight, right? That's the for three days, and then they uh, cut it to 0.15 on the last day. Uh, mm-hmm. So that is the the classic. Uh, I mean, it's, yeah, the paper that quantified the methods. But you mentioned that ha- habitually, if you consume a lot of water, for example, let's just say uh, you are. You combine the sixty-three kilo class, but let's just say habitually you consume four liters of water a day, right? Mm-hmm. And ten times body weight for you, uh, sorry, ten times ten one liter per ten kilo body weight. If you follow the guidelines, would just be six six point three liters, right? Which mm-hmm. is not really a big, uh, increase, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, but where some people, for example, like I'm not even kidding, where I know somebody that they only drink like five hundred mils of water a day. Yeah, I had a, that girl right. I was talking about that cut to, to 84. Her water load was like three and a half liters. And she was like, this is so much water because she literally yeah. doesn't drink water like at all. Yeah, yeah. so my, my, so my question to you oh is how would you usually prescribe your water load? Do you use, uh, like, do you multiply their, their current intake by X amount? If so, what is that amount? Or do you follow the the formula by real which use a multiplier of their body weight because like you said if that li- that that female lifter who is the 84 kilos say that three and a half liters of water is a lot can you imagine her drinking the recommendation by real she would probably be drinking 8.5 liters which is five liters more than what you're already giving her so yeah. that is like my question to you uh how do you usually recommend your your water loading I do multipliers based off habitual intake and um, just because I do find that the body weight just it just doesn't work for everyone in the context that you put there that like I my personal experience is that I would drink like at least three liters of water on an average day so when I water load as you said that's 6.3 liters it's not actually enough to have an effect uh, versus my other lady who 3.5 liters was a huge amount of water for her and um, I actually use um, a calculator uh, which the strength athletes uh, brought out um, for their their water load um, and it's it depends on the person so I'll do out their calculation um, and it's used off their habitual intake but I I when I have someone comp week obviously I mean you're probably the same I get them to contact me with their weight every single morning and we adjust the plan based on what's what's necessary. So I might increase their water more than what the plan says based as the week goes along, depending on what their weight is doing or how it's reacting. So I suppose I do use a multiplier based off habitual intake, but I would be flexible within that. And I think that's kind of the more weight cuts I've done, the more knowledge I've gained on being able to like knowing how to adjust someone's water intake. But yeah, I do think using multiplier of intake is better than multiplier of body weight. Yeah, I think that 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 is true as well. You know, I feel at the end of the day, uh, like I said, I don't know the which which is actually better. And I think what uh in my 
my uh PhD, right? Mm. That's what I'm gonna like find out. I'm just gonna use. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah, we. I mean, these are all answers we want to know. Kedrick, Kedrick will have to come up with uh with a calculator, performance, performance water loading calculator, yeah. and like pattern it, like actually pattern it. You know, especially after you've done all your research when you've got the PhD, yeah. <laughs> you know, you should pattern yeah. that idea and be like. This is the gold standard I, <laughs> for water loading and water cutting. Like, like to be honest, I, I honestly don't think that uh, I can confidently say that this will work 100% of the time because so far in my career, I've uh, had three lifters that doesn't respond to water loading or water cutting at all, right? Yeah. So I, I like I said, I, I don't know why, uh, even in papers, like read the paper by real they they can't really tease out like the me- mechanisms on why like the water loading work because they said whatever they believe the hypothesis it like it didn't it wasn't really like the, me- the mechanisms were, were not confirmed you know so mm. i i can't really s- say that okay x method works x-, x method doesn't what i'm trying to find out is that you know cool my my role is quite simple is i want to make this as easy as possible for the lifter exactly, yeah. right so if I go with multiplier over habitual intake and that works, and if that is a lower amount, we'll use that, you know? If I... Yeah. Basically, what I want to do is I want to go with the lowest amount, the lowest increase for that person so it's not difficult yeah. uh, and still have that effect. So that's what I'm trying to find out. So I'm just going to basically have the same person come in, do the uh, water load X way, right? Then after a washover, uh, wash out period, repeat the water load in a different way and then we just quantify the different amounts of weight loss across and obviously with like hopefully with like 13 or 15 participants i'm able to actually find out uh what what actually uh happened uh so to kind of tease out what's the best way to do things like i said my my role is not to like oh yeah i'm gonna sell you this this method i'm just like cool i think this is the easiest way which is why i say that if you if you do this way and it works for you in the past i'm not gonna change it i'm not gonna like suddenly overhaul something right because yeah. Not to mention, if you change something, the person will be like, "Oh, I'm not really like." There, there's uncertainty, and uncertainty would 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 add a fear as well. Because exactly, when someone's yeah. drinking a lot of water, their weight on the scale will go up, right? Naturally, they should go up by a bit, and be like, "Oh my gosh, I'm gaining weight," you know. Uh, and if this, then they be like, "Oh no, what if this doesn't work? What if I hold on to all the water?" So your role as a coach is like, "Yeah, you know, you know, things will be okay. Uh, you know, trust the process. You know, the, those those cliches you throw out. But if something yeah. has already been working, <laughs> why are you gonna go and throw the uncertainty in like a couple of days before competition?" No. So I actually wanted to kind of add something in yeah. on water cutting is that a or, sorry water loading and water cutting because it can be one or both. Um, is something I found from anecdotal experience is really explaining to lifters that they need to spread the water intake out throughout the entire day for it to have a proper effect. Um, Because I've had people who've done it before and they're like, oh, it didn't really work on me, but they literally left like four liters till like seven o'clock in the evening um, because they're not used to drinking that amount of water and they weren't really like on drinking their water intake um i usually get people to like get like a small bottle and be like how many of those do you have to have and then set a time throughout the day um that's something that i mean again i don't know the the mechanistics of it i suppose it's probably because you're you're actually just going to the bathroom more frequently throughout the day if you're spreading it out better um that's something that i've noticed that has helped make a difference in people's water load is spreading out the water intake throughout the entire day um and then for some people as well i would say try to have like 80 percent of it before 
6 p.m. so that you're not getting up all night to go to the bathroom and then getting poor sleep the week of competition as well. Yeah, I I was actually in my head when you said spreading out the water. I I before you, you mentioned eighty percent before six p.m. In my head, I was like, yeah, I'm gonna tell her that I use eighty percent before six p.m. But you already <laughs> said it, so uh, I I guess you kind of like. Re- re- but that, but that, but that's also but that's also like the, the the whole like oh we generally recommend people do this, but a lot of the time like especially in like the first two days, I think of like an actual world order, the first two days, POP is like. There's, especially like when they're when they're going from like let's say three leaders to like six leaders like double up that first two days just sucks you're like oh <laughs> yeah i'm just gonna li- I'm, I'm just gonna wait until like i can get two leaders before bed i'm just gonna like, try to down it and then they sit in bed and like why am i doing this <laughs> yeah <laughs> you're just so good at i think yep go ahead oh and I, and I think one of the things that Kedrick you mentioned I think was quite interesting as well as I guess being part of like a nutrition coach in general particularly in this whole very very specific niche context of rapid weight loss I think it's also uh, getting your athlete to realize that um, there's obviously numbers and, and papers and science out there but if we can treat each cut each rapid cut as an experiment and just kind of see like which one works best I think it it also gain gives them confidence, right? As as every, I, I'm sure all three of us here would agree on the call. Like, um, if someone is going to do a water load or a water cut, just get the first one in, get that experience in, and then as you do more of it, you start to figure out, oh, you know, like I actually preferred that one better because I felt better. Uh, my deload was a lot better as well, you know, um, you know barring all the other factors etc etc i think if as as an athlete if you can you know obviously talk to your coach but treat each water load as an experiment as well and then if you are uh, able to i guess represent your country to go to worlds and stuff like that then it's kind of just like looking at what you've done in the past and it's like oh this one worked exactly, best yeah. this approach worked best we're gonna do that and i think if uh for both coach and athlete i guess it's just making sure like it's not always a fail like Kedrick said he hit three people who didn't respond well to a water load or a water cut but it's also a case of like for those three people I would probably say hey maybe that didn't work like try just talk to Kedrick again I guess and try to try out another strategy because hey he's the one doing a PhD I'm sure he probably has most of the answers um like just just give it another crack try another method you know see what works see what works best because I swear to god like some people just like to what like will love to water load and not do gut manipulation as like the first uh you know like low-hanging fruit because mm. they'd be like oh drinking water is easy for me whereas some people it's like 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 your client uh 500 mils to you know three 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 and a half liters is a big ask yeah <laughs> yeah i think uh based on your question uh i i definitely agree with that as well in terms of like spreading out your water my my hypothesis obviously this is just what i think based on understanding how the human uh physiology functions is that i think uh our body like it's really like tightly regulated right yeah. like uh, our, our brain con- um, and our hormones uh, the feedback loops are really tightly regulated for a certain reason and what uh i think is that the hormones involve uh mainly uh ADH, right? Antidiuretic hormone uh, is basically stimulated by uh, the pituitary lobe, like one of the parts of the brain. And if we think about 
like I think of this mechanistically from like thresholds, right? So our body has like certain adaptation thresholds. Uh, for example, uh, muscle protein synthesis. We use this very, I I use this in I use this example because I think it's more uh, relatable. Is this? Let's just say if you eat one hundred grams of protein versus mm. like thirty grams of protein, and if uh, you you meet that lu- that leucine threshold roughly two point five grams of leucine, your muscle protein synthesis is going to be maximum, right? Whether it's hundred grams or whether it's 30 grams, right? I'm not saying that 100 grams is uh, not as, uh, you don't, I'm not saying you only need 30 grams, but I'm saying that that mm. threshold of uh, muscle protein synthesis has been met by the maximum amount. So perhaps uh, the the ADH, right, functions in a similar manner where uh, you actually, uh, the maximum threshold, or let's just say if you consume X amount of water in X amount of time, you maximize yeah. that, that threshold. And then uh, mm. what happens is that the more you can kind of like maximize that threshold, which means that you need some like, maybe it's like certain like down regulation and then you up regulate it again. Your body gets used to that rather than, right, I'm just going to consume four liters and you still get that similar spike of uh, whatever hormone yeah. or uh, which is the maximum. So I think that the body is really tightly regulated mm-hmm. in that manner and you need to consist like consistently expose uh, someone to that. I think that that might actually be something that, uh, uh, that might be a potential mechanism uh, out there, but I can't, I can't say for sure. You know, mm. I, I would love to do all the studies. Unfortunately, uh, exercise science is not uh, heavily funded. So whoever that's listening out there that has all the money and if you want to fund some studies, let me know. Or if you want to do the studies by yourself and <laughs> want to talk to me about study design, let me know as well. But yeah, I think that's uh, uh, really like we, we covered a lot, a, lot of, uh, a lot today. And I think the big part for you... Uh, is like a question I like to ask you is when it comes to making uh, like calling like an audible, like when you look at an athlete and be like, okay, cool, whatever I've been doing, right? Uh, uh, like things are not working. Like you mentioned just now, you had experience uh, on when to adjust water intake, right? And if you read the scientific paper, they don't do that because obviously there has to be a control experiment. So how... In, in, in your experience, how often do you have to adjust things on the fly? or mm. And when do you find that to be necessary? Or do you just say, tell the athlete, okay, cool. Uh, I'm not going to, like, in, in your head, I'm not going to adjust everything, but I'm going to just tell the athlete to stick to it. So my question is, when do you adjust it for the athlete or when do you tell the athlete to just stick to it? Uh, yeah, I think that, yeah. So it's more like a practice question. Yeah, I suppose as I said, when I have someone on comp week, I will get them to text me their weight every morning, but I'll also get them to text me their weight before they went to bed the night before. So I get that, you know, some people call it the float weight. So like the, how much weight that you're you're losing overnight. And I suppose the main thing I would actually usually adjust is to maybe down-regulate the plan to do less. Um, because what I will usually do is I will make out their plan for like their seven days based on what they're weighing on their first day and um, for them to make weight on comp day but as time goes on and if their weight is dropping we don't necessarily need to do like maybe we don't need to cut carbs as hard maybe we don't need to you know do as low volume like as in like drinking liquids maybe you can still you know eat your, some of your carbs and, and things like that so I suppose the main thing I would usually do when I'm adjusting things is probably maybe t- 
take away some aspects of the plan because I, again this goes back to the point that we all made is that we just want to make it as easy as possible um for the person um and if we don't have to do certain methods there's absolutely zero reason for us to be to be doing them um so yeah i think if part someone's weight is trending in the right direction um i'd probably have a discussion about you know, maybe keeping carbs like a little bit higher, um, even from for that psychological aspect that we talked about. I mean, I think the main thing people fear when they're cutting carbs going into a comp is that like, well, I always eat high carbs and carbs are good for powerlifting performance. So I'm not going to perform well because I'm, I'm cutting carbs. So if I'm able to tell them, well, actually, we can have like 30 or 40 grams more than we planned today, that can even have like a psychological benefit for them. So yeah, I'd say more often than not, I'm telling people just to really kind of strip it back to the minimum of what we absolutely have to do as the week goes on. Because someone's weight at the start of a weight cut can be very different to how it is four days in and how it is right the day before. And that's why I think that I do like to have that daily contact with, with people. Mm. Yeah, I think definitely adjusting on the fly is is very important um because like everyone probably knows this but everyone's built yeah. different as kedrick used that phrase um and i think it's it's also a thing like especially people get into the, the middle of the the water load you know especially if you're water loading you see a weight basically being the highest it's probably ever been in your in, in like the peaking month and you're like it's time to freak out i think it's just those small adjustments and like both yourself and kedrick mentioned just those small reassurances like hey either stick or change i think can be very beneficial um because at the end of the day like we want the athlete to not just make weight obviously which is one of the goals but it's also to make sure we get there um easily yeah. and also enjoy um you know the actual game day itself and you know hopefully go nine for nine yeah, right definitely so um awesome well the episode has been really great and we generally always ask our guests this question uh jane so taking it back to square one what would be your advice for someone who is wanting to do their first ever water cut Taking it back to square one is why do you want to do the water cut? I want to know why do you, why do you want to do it? Honestly, um, mm-hmm. and that's what when anyone comes to me saying that they cut weight, that's where I'll go to first before I say let's let's do it. Um, it's what I talked about these pros and cons of weight cutting. Often the cons can be a lot higher than people realise, especially for new people. You know, you were talking earlier, Kendrick, about how the new people don't really maybe have the skill for weight cutting, but a lot of them don't have the muscle mass to be, you know, cutting weight. I mean, you see these elite people in the IPF that cut weight and still win world championships, but they have very high levels of muscle mass and they're still able to win with a total that is less than maybe what they're able to perform at in training. So, yeah, taking it back to square one is why do you want a water cut? and really looking at the reasoning behind it and whether it's a feasible or a smart option for you. All right. So, yeah, thank you for your time, Jane. This uh, episode has been fantastic. I think it's nice for once, like I said, myself not being the one answering the questions. (laughs) Uh, You know, after a while, when you do a lot of uh, this kind of stuff, 
people just say, oh, cool, you know, can you come on my podcast and talk about this? I'm like, yeah, you know, like, because as a person, that's the, literally the only thing I can talk about ever, right? I, like, I cannot talk about anything else, but I only can talk about rapid weight, weight cutting. So it's nice for once to be on, on the listening end, even though I think I uh, did a fair bit of talking because I just like to do, uh, be long-winded. But thank you so much for your time. I think that this episode has been really uh, insightful and let... Uh, let our listeners know uh, where where they can find you and reach out if they they want to yeah they want help or they want uh, to to ask any questions. Yeah, um, so the best place to get me is probably my Instagram. Um, I'm at Jane uh, Jane with a Y J A Y N E uh, Kate underscore, um, and you can also follow at Abs Powerlifting. Um, is the club that I do nutrition coaching under as well. All right, yeah, thank you so much for the time. So uh, thank you for all the listeners that have been listening and supporting us. And if you think that this episode has been useful for you or maybe your friends or anyone you know who actually is contemplating on cutting weight, especially, uh, yes, there's a competition coming up uh, in New Zealand and many more. We'll try to get... We'll try to get this before that before before <laughs> yeah, Sunday. Yeah. Ma- ma- many more competitions coming up. You know, uh, I think this topic of weight cutting would always be... Uh, be brought up uh, as long as people cut weight so yeah please share them with all with your with your friends and fellow athletes and thank you all for listening don't forget to like uh subscribe you know on you if you watch this on youtube which you are one of like the five five people that watch this on youtube besides my uh besides three of my family members uh click the bell you know and yeah and till next time 